You know, as uh, Barry said, we're here to be built up. You probably wonder, well, how in the world am I built up in church history? You ever, you ever read Psalm 106? I thought y'all were cheering me there for a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd begun to get excited there a little bit. If you ever read Psalm 106, it really just kind of moves through. There's several of these psalms that move through the history of Israel. You know, when you get over to Acts and the stoning of Stephen, um, what does Stephen do in, this, in that whole chapter when they go to put him to death? They put him to death because he walks them through their whole history. And he points out just how rebellious they, they've been. And by the way, Stephen was a what? A deacon. He was a deacon. Stephen was a deacon, and he knew the history of Israel. You get back in Psalm 106, the psalmist there is a historian. He knows the history of Israel. So you're built up by, you know, learning our history. The Jews did it. We do it. Now, I asked Kirkwood to sing that song tonight. because I had it on my mind this morning um, and just was going through the words. That song, that hymn was written by Samuel John Stone, who was an Anglican priest, priest in the Church of England, and he wrote it in the 1860s. Now, if you stop and think about that, in the 1860s, you've got the United States is in the midst of a civil war, uh, England at that time, um, there was a priest, an Anglican priest down in South Africa who was beginning to pick up on Darwinism and was questioning the first five books of Moses. And uh, in the Anglican church, they were beginning this battle over what I would just simply say is liberalism. And so here was this priest questioning that in Samuel John Stone comes and he writes this hymn to say basically, listen, the church is God's church. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ and everything's going to be okay. I want you to listen to a couple of verses you never seen. You probably have never heard these. Um, a lot of hymnals don't even put these in there. Listen to a couple of these verses. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, speaking of the church, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. That's what's going on in, in, his, in his world at that time. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to God sustain and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her, a false sons in her pale. You think he was getting at that priest down in South Africa with that? And false sons in her pale against the foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. What a, what a strong word to say that the church is built on Jesus Christ. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. He didn't look at Peter and say, now, Peter, you will build the church. He said, I will build the church. Now, it's good to remember that in church history because there are these constant heresies, these constant um, um, 
problems, these constant schisms, these constant divisions that are taking place. As you look through church history, however, here we are, Wednesday night, 2019, and we're gathered to do what? To worship Jesus Christ as a church. So I'm closing out the history tonight. I'm having a tough time doing this. Uh, I'm having a tough time because I don't know how to wrap it up. I don't know where to go or what to do. But we closed last time with this woman coming to the throne. There she is. Kate comes to the throne. No, that's, that's Kate as Elizabeth I. Um, she comes to the throne. She is more man than her daddy could have ever imagined. She rules for 40 years, 40, 41 years. She is a force to be reckoned with. Uh, she was not just powerful. She's, I started to bring a lot of quotes from her. I just loved to, um, she's fascinating to me. Elizabeth said, I'm, I won't get it exactly. She said, my frame may, may be that of a female, but I have the heart and the stomach of a man. Uh, she was, um, and she was right. She was something else. Well, when she comes to the throne, if you remember, I shared with you her brother, her younger brother, taught her the Bible, discipled her. He was a pure Calvinist. He wrote the 42 articles that became the basis of the Anglican church, and he died at 15. Now, don't, don't forget that. So when she comes to the throne, she says, enough. This is it. Forget it. We're having the Church of England. That's what it's going to be. She moderates the 42 articles down to 39 articles. She acquiesces uh, in some way, and um, she says, but this is how the church is going to be. And the Anglican church becomes doctrinally Protestant. But in the service, ecclesiastically, it is Catholic. So when you went into their church, you would not notice the difference between the service of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, or we call it the Episcopal Church, and the Roman Catholic Church. It was basically the same. Well, um, she settles that issue. She's also going to help found the new world. The French are up in the north getting furs, because that's important to French, uh, to the French. They're up in Canada getting furs. The Spanish are down in the south getting gold. She sends a guy that she kind of loves, a guy by the name of Sir Walter Raleigh. She sends him to take the middle part of the New World, this guy. She sends him over there to um, try to start a colony which is a failure. It doesn't happen. However, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh does bring back two things that uh, really makes England in the days to come. Uh, two things that the English love. One is something they can wear. He brings back cotton. And they absolutely go nuts over cotton, over that heavy wool that they're wearing all the time. So he brings cotton back. The English love that. He brings back that crazy weed. And I'm not talking about marijuana. I'm talking about tobacco. He brings back tobacco. And they take the tobacco 
and they cure it and they crush it up and they put it in pipes and they begin to smoke it and uh, they are they are growing it in places in England like Marlborough, Kent, Salem, Lucky Strike, England. No. So you see, you see where all that comes from? Well, this guy brought it back. They kind of went haywire over it. And uh, he founds an area called, he names it for Queen Elizabeth, and he calls it Virginia for the Virgin Queen, which is where uh, in 1607 you're going to have, into Virginia is going to go uh, really the first colony. I, I think it was, he, he started the colony there at Manio uh, that just disappeared. The lost colony, if you've ever heard of that. They believed most of those. If, if you ever wondered where the, the blue-eyed Indians come from, y'all know Johnny Hunt? Johnny Hunt's going to be here, by the way, in uh, the 1st of April leading a men's conference. So all you men, you'll want to be here. Now, I want us to have about 500 men here for that conference. Johnny Hunt is a blue-eyed Indian. Doesn't he have blue eyes? He's a Lumbee, he's a Lumbee Indian. The Lumbee Indians are the only Indian tribe in America that has blue eyes. And they think it came from the colony that he started on Roanoke Island at Manio. Anyway, that's more history. That's not my notes, so for just forget I said that. But there is a colony that's going to start. They're going to land uh, at the very northern part of Virginia Beach. If you've ever been to, been to Virginia Beach, there's a place there that is called the Charlestown Landing. They landed there. They got off the ship. They erected a cross. They got on their knees, and they prayed to God. And then they went on up the James River, and at a place that you all have heard of Williamsburg, it was right there at Williamsburg, down on the James River, where they founded their colony. And so that was the first permanent colony um, in, in the New World. Uh, what you know most about is up at Plymouth Rock, and that's going to come in 1622, I think that's right. Anyway, that's, that's a few years off. Well, that's what this guy does. Well, Elizabeth is going to do what everybody does. She's going to die. And when she dies, she dies without an heir. Uh, she, doesn't, uh, she doesn't have a child. She's never married. She's the virgin queen. All the way to her death is what they called her. Parliament would rail on her to get married, get married, produce an heir, have a child. And in a fit of anger, she goes in and she looks at Parliament, all of those men, and she says, I have a husband. His name is England. And so with that, they shut up. <laughs> they don't say anything else to her about it. She dies, but she has no heir. Now, she did have a rival. Do you remember who she was? Mary, Queen of Scots who was a very beautiful woman, had a son by Lord Dunley, uh, Dudley, uh, Donley, and um, that child became known as James VI. He is going to become king of England. It is a very smooth transition. Um, a lot of these things were very hard and difficult, but this was not difficult. There was nobody else. He was the closest uh, the closest relative, and they embraced him. And I looked for a quote from her today, and I could not find it, but it seems like close to her death, 
Elizabeth kind of speaks to, to the ghost of Mary, Queen of Scots, and she says, uh, you acquire the throne anyway. You get the throne in the end. And she does through her son, James VI of Scotland, who becomes James I, pretty significant fellow, James I of, of, uh, of England. Well, he's got problems back in Scotland. Catholics, the Jacobites. I bet all of y'all are watching. What's that, what's that uh, book series you read? What's the name of that thing? Yeah, Outlander. The Jacobites. You got to know some history if you watch that thing, and you need to close your eyes through some of it. Uh, the Jacobites um, are the Catholics. They want to take Scotland back to uh, Catholicism. But you've got this guy there by the name of John Knox, uh, who Mary, Queen of Scots, was terrified of. Uh, they say that Knox came to the castle, Stirling Castle, where Mary was staying, and pounded on the castle door and would scream out, I've come to inquire of the soul of Mary, Queen of Scots. And they said it terrified her. She said she was far more fearful of the prayers of John Knox than any army that ever marched. Well, Presbyterians were strong in Scotland, and here is James VI, and he's caught between these Jacobites and these Presbyterians, and he was glad to get out of there, but when he went to England, he runs into the Puritans. And the Puritans immediately want to meet him. There is what is called the millinery petition, and they meet him at Hampton Court House. They meet him. If I go back just a moment to Henry VIII, Henry VIII had uh, Wolsey was his um, Lord of the Exchequer is the only thing I can think of, but that's not what it was at that time. He was basically his Lord Chancellor. He was his Lord Chancellor. Wolsey had built an absolute unbelievable palace on the river uh, in Hertfordshire, and he goes back there. Uh, Henry goes to see him, and he looks at him, and he says, I really like this house. <laughs> and what else could Wolsey do but say, well, King, everything I have is yours, and he gives it to the king. Well, that's where they meet. James I meets with the Puritans at Hampton uh, Court, and uh, he has this petition before him, and the Puritans are saying, we don't like the Anglican church. It's too much like the Catholic church. We don't want to worship in that. We're, we're not Catholics. We are, we are Protestants, and we want you to do something about this Catholic ritual that goes on in the Anglican church. Well, now, James could care less. Uh, and he ignores everything that they say except for one thing. He feels like I can get on their good side if I do one thing, and the easiest thing for me to do is to give them one thing that they demanded, and they demanded a Bible in their own language. We want the Word of God. We, we are sick of this Latin Vulgate. We can't read it. Uh, it's of no use to us. We want the Word of God in our language. And James I said, okay, I can do that. I'll do that. He authorizes what becomes known as the King James Version, 1611. And he not only authorizes it, he pays for it. So he's doing everything that he can in order to appease these Puritans. He's even going to get married to appease them. Uh, James I 
Now, I'm going to tell you, and I just hope, I, listen, I preached, well, I, I did church history in First Jacksonville back in 2006. I came to this, and I said it, and I had a couple that left the church. I can't, I can't do but tell you what history says. And history is very clear. This guy was as immoral as anybody could be. He was a homosexual. Um, he was as immoral as Henry VIII. Uh, Henry VIII just liked a lot of wives. This guy liked a lot of men. Uh, he was as immoral as his mother. Mary, Queen of Scots, was a very immoral woman. And this guy comes to the throne, and he is just incredibly immoral, a homosexual, and um, that doesn't bother me a bit. That's just fact. And I'm going to tell you why. I hope you don't leave over that, but that's just the truth. Um, God, Luther said this, uh, the devil is God's de devil. The devil is God's devil. That is, God can use the devil anytime he wants to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. You ever heard the little joke about the woman whose neighbor was an atheist and she was just a godly, sweet little lady, old, didn't have much money, and uh, she had run out of all of her groceries and she just opened the window and got down on her knees and she was just praying, Lord, I'm hungry and I don't have any money and I have no way to go get groceries. And the old atheist next door heard her praying and he thought, I'm just going to play a trick on her. And he went down to the grocery store and bought groceries and came back, stuck them in the front door, knocked on the door and ran off so that she wouldn't see him. She goes to the door, finds the groceries. She's just praising God, thanking God. She goes back to her room, gets down in front of the window, begins to thank God for the food. And the guy looks out and he hollers at her and he says, you crazy old woman. God didn't do that. I bought those groceries and brought them to your door. And she said, no, God did it, even if he had to use the devil to get it here. <laughs> even if he had to use the devil, he got the Word of God in English to the people of England. God can use the devil for his own purposes. The devil, according to Luther, is God's devil. <laughs> I love that. Woo, that gives me cold chills. Anyway, well, he's just as godless as he can be. He does that, but now let me tell you, there is one thing about this guy that's kind of interesting, and it's this. He is terrified of witches. That's the only thing that uh, just really consumes his mind is that he is terrified of witches. He wrote a work called Demonology in 1597. Debbie and I sat on the edge of a bed and held the copy, the, one of the original printings of that from 1597, and I started reading through some of it. Dr. Ryrie had an actual 1597 printing of his book, one of the few that's left in the world. He wrote about demons, how you could tell demons and witches and what they were. And let me tell you, he goes to get married. He, he marries because he wants these Puritans to get off of him about this immoral lifestyle he's living. So he marries Anne of Denmark in Norway. She's a Protestant. He goes and he gets on a ship to go over to get her and when he does, the ship sails out into the English Channel, into the North Sea, and a storm comes up that is just horrific. It blows up out of nowhere. Horrific storm. 
nearly sinks the ship. It makes its way back to the Firth of Forth there at North Brestwick in Scotland. And everybody says that was such a horrible storm and it came up so suddenly that it was the work of witches. And he had 200 witches burned at North Brestwick. Now let me tell you, that's where my lineage goes back to. To that part, it's just a fishing village to the east of Edinburgh. There's a picture of it. The witches meeting with the devil. See, there's the devil right there. That's a woodcut. And um, there the witches gathered. In the churchyard is where they claimed that the uh, witches would hold their coven. And so he was terrified. The interesting thing is this. Shakespeare is writing a play right now at the same time. It's called Macbeth. Have you ever seen Macbeth? The opening scene is... Three witches. I won't say anything about Debbie's sisters. It's the, it's the meeting of three witches. You know, when shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or rain? When the hurly-burly's done and the battle's lost or gained, we shall meet on the heath. We shall meet with Macbeth. He writes that as James I is king of England to poke at the king and his tyranny because he was, uh, he was just a tyrant. He wouldn't meet with parliament. parliament. He hated parliament, and for seven years, England went without a parliament meeting. And he would then call them together and disband them, call them together and disband them, and um, he just couldn't stand parliament, and so... That was the way it was, and Parliament was all up in the air about it. But James dies, and his son comes to the throne. Now, here's where you're going to take out your anger on the son that you had at the dad. James has a son whose name is Charles I. Charles I hates Parliament just like his dad, just like his dad, you know, like father, like son. He hates Parliament. He'll call Parliament together and disband them, call them together and disband them, and Parliament is tired of this. They say, we put up with this mess from your dad. We're not going to put up with it anymore. They begin to raise an army. Now, all of Parliament right now is made up of Puritans, Baptists, and Presbyterians. That's Parliament. Oh, that Congress could be made up of Baptists and Presbyterians. They, 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 uh, they begin to raise an army, and there is a Puritan that's in the middle of that whole parliament group right there who is very godly, reads his Bible constantly, and turns out to be a military genius. He really is an administrative genius, and his name is Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell. He's going to lead the army of the parliament. Charles sees this happening. He raises an army called the Royalists, and they begin to battle. And in fact, they're really two big battles. They kind of keep missing each other, but there are two big battles that they fight, and Cromwell, in his military genius, wins both of those battles. They eventually catch this guy. Uh, well, that's Cromwell there. They eventually catch Charles I, and they cut his head off. 
And Cromwell, they, they call, some call for him to be made king. And Cromwell says, no, I don't want that. I'm not going to do it. But he makes himself Lord Protector of England. So he sets up the rule. And what it basically happens is that all of England now falls under Puritan rule, and that is church. That's the way the whole government is set up, but it doesn't work well. It doesn't go off well because he's getting older, he dies, his son takes his place, and his son, though he's a good boy, just is not the dad and um, just is not effective as a leader. Now, let me give you two books. There's a book on the killing of King Charles I called To Kill a King by none other than Charles Spencer. Does that name ring a bell? That's Lady Diana Spencer's brother. He wrote a book called Killing a King. That was the killing of Charles I. Then he writes a second book, which is better than the first book, and that is To Catch a King. Because Charles I had a son, Charles II. And they wanted to catch Charles II and cut his head off, but he eluded them. It's pretty fascinating. Spencer does a good job with this book. And he writes about how Charles II evaded and hid and disguised himself and traveled and was trying to get out of the country. And, um, but when all of this goes south, when the, when, the, when the government doesn't work the way the Puritans wanted it to work, They go to Charles. They finally go to Charles, and they say, will you please take this thing back over? Let me tell you, most people don't want to run what they want to take over. You want to go sit in my office for about a week? Most people want to run something until they get it, and then they discover there's a lot more to run in it than I ever thought to begin with. So that didn't work. That's going to happen again. I'm going to show you that at at the end of this. Um, And so Charles II comes to the throne. Now, Charles puts back the Anglican church. He really, in his heart, is Catholic. In fact, on his deathbed, he converts to to Catholicism. Charles II does. And um, he puts the Anglican church back, and it infuriates the Puritans. Makes Parliament mad again. Uh, But he's going to die. So there's not a whole lot there. They can't get him, cut his head off. But his brother comes to the throne. And his brother's name is James II. And James II continues to appoint Catholic priests to positions. He begins to appoint them as professors at Oxford. He begins to put them in the government, in all of these important positions. And at that time, uh, Parliament and the rest of England stand up and say, this is it. We're, we're done with this. We're not Catholic. And in fact, let me tell you, not long after this, they're going to pass a law in England that no Catholic can ever be king. Well, um, what are they going to do? They turn to a guy who's a Scotsman. You always need a Scotsman to lead you. You always need a Scotsman to lead you. So they turned to William III, William of Orange. And William of Orange is married to James II's daughter, Mary. And so you're going to have the reign of William and Mary. You're going to have the two of them. 
they take Mary, put her on the throne because James leaves the country. James II flees. He takes the seal of state and he throws it in the Thames. Parliament meets and says, that is an act of abdication. Your daughter will become queen. She's married to this guy, William uh, III, William of Orange. She's married to that. There he is right there. She's married to this guy, and they are actually in love. They actually love each other, and they work as well a team as any husband and wife ever worked together. She handed over almost all the power to her husband, as any good woman should do. <laughs> and he ruled very well, and when he was out of the country fighting wars, she ruled in his place, and she was sharp. And he was sharp. And they did a tremendous job. And in the midst of all of this, <laughs> you've got Baptists coming to life. The 1600s, very turbulent time, just as William and Mary took the throne. You know what that'd be like? It'd be like Ivanka and Jared taking over the White House. That's what happened there. That's what happened. 1600s were very turbulent time. But in the midst of all that turbulence, you got a guy by the name of John Smythe. I think I've got a picture of him right there. There's your Baptist forefather right there. There he is. Smythe planted the first general Baptist church in England. He took his congregation and left. It's kind of funny. The whole congregation would be like me just taking all y'all and saying, guys, we're just going to move from here. And we're going to move to London. And just all of us pack up and move to London together. They all packed up and moved to Holland. And he got to Holland, and he got under the influence of those who had come out under the Anabaptists. He got under the influence of Mennonites. And he began to understand that worship should be from the heart. Who knew? Because we all read prayers out of the Book of Common Prayer. He said, you should never have a book before your eyes in worship. What you should have is to pray from the heart. Sing from the heart. Preach from the heart. He's Baptist. And under the influence of these Mennonites, he comes under great conviction, I need to be immersed. And he doesn't have anybody. He doesn't, I don't know why he doesn't do this to begin with, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't turn to the Mennonites or to the brethren. He doesn't turn to them. He baptizes himself. And so he baptizes himself, and then he baptizes the rest of his congregation because they'd all been sprinkled, but now they are moving toward this, this whole concept of being Baptists. A few years later, he's going to say, you know what, I did that wrong. I should not baptize myself. I should be baptized by somebody who's been in a line of succession of being baptized. And so he goes to the Mennonites, and he says, will you baptize me? And so the Mennonites, and so we as Baptists trace all the way back to those Mennonites who baptized Smythe. Helwes, um, Thomas Helwes, always. Now, folks, this is where I have really struggled the whole day. How much do I go into this? How much do I go into this? And what do I do? And I'm trying to wrap all of this up tonight, and so I know I'm, I'm running from this to this to this to this because there's so much history. Uh, that's out there. And um, that's basically, I leave, 
I leave Baptist there. They come back to England. Hell was feels like we should go back to England. We should not run away. And so he takes the Baptist congregation back to England. And General Baptist, in particular Baptist, are like two porcupines in love. And they come together, and then they stick, and they part, and they come together, and they stick, and they part. Baptist splits so much. Why, do, why is there so much splitting in Baptist churches? It starts out that way. It starts out that way because, not because they disliked each other. It's because everybody, Puritans, Catholics, and everybody else were trying to kill Baptists. Everybody wants us dead. Everybody. And so they would grow. Baptists were growing like wildfire. And they'd have to constantly split. We can't have this many people. So you take these few people off and you go here. And you take these few people off and go here. And you take these few people off and go over here. Because if they find too many of us together, they're going to figure out we're Baptists and what we're doing. And they're going to kill us. Now that's where, that's where you... And so eventually Baptists are going to do what right now in the 1600s you're finding a whole group of Puritans doing. And that is they're gathering up everything that they have and their groups and they're beginning to come by the thousands to the new world. They just wanted to worship in freedom. They just wanted to worship with liberty. They just wanted to worship where nobody would tell them that they could not baptize, that they could not preach, that they could not teach the Word of God, or that they could not have the Word of God. And so in the 1600s, think about this now. Let me just cover the whole sweep of history with you. Do you remember back in 312 when Constantine comes to the throne and he is going to outlaw persecutions against Christians and then Christianity is eventually going to become the official religion of the Roman Empire, not since 312 has the church been free of the constant interference of the government. Baptist, you ought to hear this stuff. I'm telling you. We left England to get away from the government who constantly wanted to dictate how we worshiped, and we came here. Now, I cannot help that the last president said we are not a Christian nation. I can't help that. He missed that day at Harvard when they studied that because I'm telling you, there at Plymouth Rock, when they came, they were coming to what they called New Jerusalem, New Israel. They saw themselves and they called their leaders Joshua and Caleb. And in their mind, what they were doing, these English Puritans that left England, they said goodbye to Babylon. This is literally in their writing, goodbye to Babylon, goodbye to Rome. And they were headed off to the New Jerusalem, and that's exactly what they thought they were going to do, is that they were going to build a city on a hill that would be a light to the rest of the world. Now, let me just start throwing a couple of things out there. After they got established, and I don't have time, but maybe, maybe I'll come back at Thanksgiving and I'll talk some about this. But... Uh, uh, what they did after they got established there at Plymouth Colony was this. As they began to branch out and plant cities, they had a, they had a law called the Old Deluders Act. 
And this is what they believed. We're here to plant a Christian nation. And in a Christian nation, if we're going to have a Christian nation, this is what we've got to do. We've got to educate our children. And do you know that the Puritans were committed to educating not just the boys, but they educated the girls as well? They taught the girls. They taught the boys. They taught them to read. They taught them to write. And their textbook was the Bible. Lo and behold, how about that? Uh, The Word of God was taught in school and raised a generation like Jefferson, Franklin, Benjamin Rush, Washington. Um, It raised a generation of leaders that will last through history. And now we've put the Bible out of the classroom and look at what kind of leadership we're ending up with today. Does anybody see that? Y'all stop making me do this. Now, the old Deluders Act said every child must be educated because we're building a Christian nation. And in order to have a Christian nation, we have to have educated children. And they have to be educated in the things of God. And so the cream of the crop, the best, the brightest, there was a brain drain on England when all of these Puritans pulled out and started coming to America. And so they came to the, to the colonies here. They began this education. They even started, the first school in America was started by the Puritans to train preachers. And the uh, academy was this. It was three books down. Here was the sign of of the first school. Three books down and one book turned up. Uh, uh, Reading, writing, arithmetic were all turned down and the Bible was turned up to say it is the Word of God that stands over all of the other academic um, disciplines. That was Harvard School. Started to train preachers. Their major course was you had to read every day the New Testament portion of it in Greek. And they taught them Latin, Greek, Hebrew. And they taught them the Word of God. Harvard. Harvard. Well, we are the beneficiaries of that beginning. They had a work ethic. They had a work ethic so profound that it still impacts America today, even though we live in a lazy nation. Um, They had a spiritual depth. Uh, They had a hunger to learn and to learn for one purpose, and that was for the glory of God. Now, they were set out to do that. What happened? Why did they not, why are we not still as conservative a nation, as biblically strong as they started out? Because of what Cromwell discovered when they took England and tried to make it Puritan, you can't legislate salvation. You know that the Puritans said this, you can work and you can come to church, but if you're not, if you don't, they called it having a witness. Terminology changes over times. They said, if you don't have a witness, in other words, if you've not been, if you're not 
a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You can't vote. Uh, you, you can't hold office. Uh, there were a whole list of things you could not do, but you could come to church and sit and listen. And so in order for people to vote, in order for people to hold office, in order for people to do a lot of things, they just had to say, okay, we believe, we've had an experience. And you can't legislate that. No, 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 as hard as you try, you can't legislate that. And you say, what happened was they had a whole teen, teenagers, the whole problem, teenagers. They, they had a whole generation of teenagers that basically started rebelling. A couple of these girls got a hold of a slave from the Caribbean who taught them voodoo, <laughs> and they started going around saying, we can tell who witches are here in a place called Salem, and they started having trials, and they started burning witches in Salem. It, you know, what's the best thing to do? Paul said, just stay single. That's the best thing to do. Well, there you go. You got that. What's going to happen in those colonies it's basically this. They're going to grow to those 13 colonies. And into the 1700s early, there is this movement in Europe called deism that is going to come over. The enlightenment It's going to come over. It's going to have tremendous impact on the colonies. Uh, the colonies are going to become, listen, if y'all thought those were all church-going people, you are wrong. In the early 1700s, they were drunk. Uh, they were gambling. Uh, they were killing each other here. It was a horrible situation. Harvard went as deistic as it could go. They started another school to offset the deism at Harvard. You know what that school was? Yale. Well, all of that happens until it just gets to a terrible situation that the only thing that would help is a revival. And an awakening is going to come. Here endeth the lesson.